Thanks, Kate and JP and friends. Please keep your Bibles open uh, there at uh, chapter 12 of Hebrews as we are coming towards the uh, very last of uh, this book that we've been in for uh, getting close to two terms now and hopefully has been of great encouragement to you. Uh, outline on the back there if you want to use that. And uh, But let's pray and ask God to help us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that we've been reminded again this morning that you are a God who speaks and that you're a God, Father, who is worth listening to. And so we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let me, uh, oh, thank you. He's a nice guy, Seth, isn't he? <clears throat> let me give you three words. William Street, well, actually more than three words, but three, is it William Street, Heartbreak Hill, Bondi Beach. Uh, what have those three got in common? City of the Surf, that's right. We heard that we're in a race last week, right? And since the passage in front of us today is a continuation of last week's passage, I thought I'd milk the metaphor. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't have a city to church. That was, uh, that was quite amazing last week. Uh, but the word for that commences at verse 18 of chapter 12 actually links us back to what the writer of Hebrews has already been teaching us. Uh, in 12, but before that in chapter 11 as well, well, which is why I chose to read today from verse 12, and I'm going to reflect on a part of that a little bit more in just a moment. <clears throat> but we saw last week that the Christian life is likened to a race. And do you remember how we were told to run this race? Uh, if you look back at chapter 12, verse 1, uh, the last part of 12 verse 1, the writer says to his Christian readers, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, can I say that there is no doubt that some people who compete in the city to surf run with endurance, but there's no way that all of them do. Now, I've actually seen guys dressed up in pink fairy costumes and other kind of costumes, sprinkling fairy dust on people. They're not running. Uh, some don't even actually start running. They, they line up at the start of the race, but they just kind of walk. That's not running the race set before them. And I've seen others start really well. The gun goes off. They bolt off the line. These guys are there to run the race, but they get to Heartbreak Hill. They're halfway up, and they, they lose their ticker, their will to keep going. They start well, but they, they don't endure. And, of course, there are also others who know their race strategy who understand the race that has been set before them and the paradise of Bondi Beach that will greet them when they finish. They're the ones who run with endurance, like Paul Witheridge or Paul Kershaw, for example. They're the guys to follow. Now, I reckon the, the city to surf is a good illustration of the different ways people try to live the Christian life. Some people don't take it seriously enough. Pink fairy costumes, distracted. If the fun stops, then they're not even interested in the race. Some claim to be in the Christian race, but their heart's not in it. They're walkers, not runners. They want the benefits of being Christian, but they don't want it to cost them. They don't want to put in any effort. Others start off really well, uh, excited by the Christian race, promises of future glory, but they hadn't counted the cost. And when it gets hard, they lose their ticker, they give up. But there are also those who take time to understand the race that is set before them, who know there'll be heartbreak hills along the way to prepare for. 
who know the race strategy and are looking to the glory that awaits them at the finish line. They're the ones who run with endurance. Which one are you? See, there's only one appropriate way to compete in the Christian race, and that is to run with endurance. That's what we've heard, hasn't we, over the last few weeks. And the way to do that is there's three things. We need to know where we are heading. Secondly, we need to know where we are now. And thirdly, we need to know what our race strategy should be. Now, they're the points that you'll see there on your outlines and that we're going to have a little bit of a think through. Now, firstly, we actually need to know where we're heading. Have a a look back at verse 14 there in in chapter 12. Uh, We kind of touched on this last week, and I just want to think about it a little bit more today. Uh, Let me remind us of some of the broader context. So verse 14, he tells us there, "'Strive for peace with everyone.'" And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now you'd think that if we're in a race, we'd be striving for victory, to beat everyone else. But here we're told to strive for peace and holiness. Now humanly speaking, these Christians are not living a peaceful existence. People are hostile towards them. It's probably part of the reason why some are in danger of giving up on Christ, of drifting away. However, in the most fundamental and important way, they are at peace. That is, they are at peace with God. God has made peace with them and he's made peace with us by Jesus' blood shed on the cross. We've been seeing that, haven't we, over the last term. And so now, as a result of the peace that God has made with us, one important goal of the Christian life, of the Christian race, is to strive for peace with everyone. Real effort should be put into living at peace. And that'll mean, for example, not retaliating against those who persecute us or treat us badly. Revenge is not in our playbook. And living peacefully is especially important with our brothers and sisters in church. Now, I'm always encouraged at how well we do at this. But let's have a think about it for a little bit. You know, when two Christians find that their relationship has hit a wall for some reason, because of what God has done, they can come together again and bring their failures under the blood of Christ and get up and go again. When I hurt a person, I sin against God. We need to make it right with the person that we have hurt. I mean, the person we have hurt is not a zero. They mean something. How can I say I'm sorry to God if I'm not willing to humble myself? and say sorry to the person I've hurt. You can't trample a human relationship and then expect your relationship with God to be lovely and beautiful and open. See, what we're to strive for is a reality of peace and love and communication in our Christian-to-Christian relationships. Well, another place that we're heading here in this passage is for holiness, notice. Now, the reality here is that his readers are Christians and therefore they are already holy. God has made them holy through the cleansing effect of Jesus' blood that was shed for them. But what they're told that they must do here is they must show their holiness. They are to strive to be holy. What does that look like? Well, First and foremost, it's completely trusting and relying on Jesus' death and resurrection for you. And then it's living like you believe it. 
It's holding firmly to the hope of eternal life with God and setting yourself, setting your whole life apart to live for that. I mean, in terms of the city of the surf, it's not getting caught up with the pink fairy costumes or the we're just in it for fun, walkers, or the ones who don't prepare properly. It's actually being the ones who take it seriously, who start up the front, who have trained, who know the course and have a strategy. It's the ones who have their sights set on Bondi Beach, on the finish line. You know, those who have devoted themselves to run so as to reach the goal and finish the race. Now you might be wondering, how, how do I know that holiness actually has the end in mind? Well, look at verse 14 again. Because it tells us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I mean, no one has ever seen God as such. The Israelites used to go through elaborate ritual sacrifices and washings to be cleansed, to be made holy or sanctified, so that they might enter into God's presence somehow in the sanctuary. But the holiness that is ours through Jesus and that we strive to display is the means by which one day we will finish the race and see God, see Jesus for ourselves. So here is where we're headed as we fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race with endurance, our faith is being perfected. God is remaking us. He's producing a harvest of peace and righteousness and holiness in us so that we might be truly able to be in his presence and to see him. If you don't think that peace and righteousness is a big deal, then you should speak to the families of the thousands of civilians that have already lost their lives in the war at Ukraine. In the race set before us, we are to strive for peace with each other because God has made peace with us. And we are to strive to be holy because God has made us holy. And we will never ultimately get to where we're heading unless we are. That is, we'll never see our heavenly Father who loves us, who has saved us and who now calls us his sons. Well, that's where we're heading. But where are we at this point in time? Where do we stand? Well, here, that's essentially what he fleshes out now in verses 18 to 24, where he speaks about these two mountains that we've heard about already in the kids' talk. But let's just pick it up there. So verse 18, if you've got your Bibles there, let me read it again. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I mean, the, the writer reminds them of the great and impressive act of God in the Exodus. Uh, we read an account of it in Deuteronomy 4 in our, our earlier reading. It's the time after um, God had rescued his people from Egypt and he gathered them around Mount Sinai where he spoke to the people, where he, he made a covenant with them and gave them the Ten, the ten Commandments to live by. It was, in, it was an impressive occasion, but it was also a terrifying occasion. Even Moses, the great and holy man Moses, even he trembled with fear before God. The people were so terrified that they asked God never to speak to them like that again. 
There was a barrier at the bottom of the mountain so that people couldn't approach God. Come across that line and you're dead. Why? Because they were sinful, unholy. See, the voice of God that spoke to the people at Mount Sinai was the voice of terror. But the writer of Hebrews here reminds them that that is not where they have come. They're not, that's not where they are now. Instead, where they have come to now is a completely different mountain. See there in verse 22. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Mount Zion is the, the hill where Jerusalem was built. Uh, it was the, the focal point of the presence of God on earth. Uh, but in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and other places, uh, Mount Zion becomes a symbol for what is coming in the future. See, the New Testament actually does the same thing, and it uses Mount Zion symbolically as a mountain not of this earth, but of heaven. And he says to his readers, this is where you have come. As Christians, he says, we live with the reality that heaven is our home. You're on the electoral roll of heaven. In verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven is Christians. The whole church is God's firstborn who receive their blessing and inheritance from him. And so the writer speaks as if it's already the case. It's as if we're already there. But how can he actually do that? It's a little like you've got, let's say you've got a son who's starting kindergarten next year and he's been enrolled into school next year. So you've spoken to Patriot Public School and you've asked if he could attend there next year and they've enrolled him. He hasn't actually started attending yet, but you speak as if it's already his school. Because in a sense it is. You drive past and you say, there's your school. Or you see someone in the, in the uniform, you say, oh, there's your school uniform. Even though he hasn't actually attended a class, it really is his school. It's just a matter of time. It's a certainty. And in a similar sense, the writer can say that they are already there. The spectacular scene that the author portrays is where we already are as Christians by faith. Now, at one level, this is the reality for you and for me if we're Christian. But at another level, it's not that easy, is it? It actually seems a little bit easier for the city, the surf runner. I mean, as he, as he kind of comes down the hill, uh, he can see the glorious vista of Bondi Beach. When he finishes, he can breathe in the kind of invigorating salt air. He can feel the sand in his toes and enjoy a refreshing swim. But have a look around here. You're not in heaven, are you? You're in a quaint building with potentially hard and uncomfortable seats. When you look around, you don't see God or Jesus or innumerable, innumerable angels in great festivity. You see me and Josh and a few others and the same old people that you see every week. You see, here is the difference. When the people at Sinai heard God speak, it was a voice of terror because they were unholy. But for us, 
The voice we hear is a voice of grace. Because see there in verse 24, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I mean, the blood of Abel spoke a word of vengeance. But the voice of Jesus is a voice of grace, the voice of mercy, forgiveness. The blood of Jesus has cleansed our consciousness, consciences and made us holy before God. We can come to God now exactly as we are because of Jesus. He's made with us an unbreakable covenant to an unshakable kingdom. Have a look at what he says about it in verse 26 and following. He says, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, when God spoke from Mount Sinai, the writer recalls that the earth shook and the people were terrified. One day, however, God will speak a word that will not only shake both heaven and earth, but it will, it will remove altogether things that are made, things of this creation, things that we pour so much of our time and energy and money into. See, what a waste of time to give our lives to the rat race rather than the race that is set before us as Christians. How pathetic to give our lives to so many worthless things, things that will be shaken away like dust from a doormat, especially when what we have come to in the, the kingdom of God is unshakable. The things that we have and chase after in this world are so unsecure. What we have in this world is shakable. The city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, which we now belong to, will remain forever. We live in a terribly insecure and uncertain world, don't we? But the fact that we're now part of God's unshakable kingdom gives us a great sense of security in a very insecure world. And so given that the rest of the race is still set before us, what should be our race strategy well, one thing to remember is that you can't separate this passage from what has already come before it. Uh, we need to hold that together. In chapter 11, for example, we, we uh, look to the, we're to look to the witness of those who have gone before us faithfully under the old covenant. Uh, then Josh explained last week a further part of that strategy. So, for example, back in chapter 12, verse 1, we're to lay aside every weight and sin that entangles or trips us up. We need to run with endurance uh, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12, we need to look to and consider Jesus for direction and encouragement. It's got to be to Jesus that we're committed or, or we won't last the race. And we're to make straight paths for ourselves, ourselves down in verse 13. And then as well as that, we saw, that, saw earlier that part of our ongoing strategy is to strive for peace and holiness. However, can I say that underlying all of those things and what comes before all those things is something much more fundamental and important. See what he says there in verse 25? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. You see, the further part of our race strategy or the foundation of our race strategy, if you like, 
involve a very specific warning that we need to hear and take notice of. If you're going to seriously take part in the city to surf, then you need to know about Heartbreak Hill. You need to be warned about its dangers, about your ability to endure. And the same goes, if I can say, for running the Christian race. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See, the only way that any one of us will experience the joy of God's unshakable kingdom, which he describes God's unshakable kingdom earlier in Hebrews as a better country in verse 11 or as the world to come in chapter 2 or as God's rest in chapter 4 or our promised eternal inheritance in chapter 9, the only way that we'll experience this unshakable kingdom is if we listen carefully to the word of God. If we do not refuse the one who speaks to us from heaven. So here is the key purpose of gathering as God's church today. That we might get to know God as he speaks to us in his word. That we might encourage and help each other to know him. And to focus our thoughts and actions on living in light of all that he has done for us. Now sadly some people are happy to call themselves Christians. I mean, perhaps you're even one of them. But in reality, they place a very low value on getting to know God, on reading or studying his word, on living for him, on seeking his will for their lives, of desiring his promises to them, of helping others not to miss out on the grace of God. Instead, there are a great deal of things that are more highly valued in their lives and take precedence over the things of God. Now, we saw last week that when Esau had finally realised the value of what he had easily, so easily thrown away to his brother Jacob. It was too late and he was rejected. I mean, some people live on the basis that they will have a continual opportunity to repent. But not so. For all you know, this may be your last opportunity to turn back to God, to hear his voice to you today and to take him seriously. See, once we stand before God, having valued the world more highly and infected others along the way, it's too late to turn back then. See, now is the time to heed the warning of Hebrews in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. See, if we're to finish the race, then we, we need to take this warning seriously. You can't refuse God and expect to get away from the judge of all people. Now, I know there are plenty of people who are, are taking their relationship with Jesus very seriously, which is a wonderful thing. But if for some reason that's not you, or if you're just kind of playing around the edges of Christianity, then you need to stop fooling around with it. It's hearing God's word and taking it seriously. It's listening to and living for God that really matters. Through Jesus, Christians have received a heavenly calling. We've been invited to share in his glorious internal inheritance. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been given life in his name. And so the writer urges, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See that no one misses the grace of God. If you're a Christian, God has given you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, Bonlo Beach doesn't come close to what God has given to us. 
And so the way we need to respond is by being grateful. Notice what he says there, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, are you grateful to God for all that he has done for you? It's hard to capture everything that God has done for us and understand it. But being grateful, recognising all that God has done, thankfulness is a distinguishing mark of a Christian person. The second response is to offer to God, notice what he says here, offer to God acceptable worship or acceptable service with reverence and awe. Now we're going to think about that more and in more detail next week because that's where it goes on into, verse, into chapter 13 to help us understand what it looks like to offer God acceptable service. But the fact that acceptable worship or service is done with reverence and awe is a crucial reminder, isn't it, that we should not be playing around with God as if he doesn't matter. Why? We'll see verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we have been given so much. We have received an an incredible calling to be your children, to be loved by you, to be welcomed into your eternal kingdom. Father, our sins forgiven, hope for eternity, free from a guilty conscience and shame. So much that is ours in Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we have come to that mountain that can never be taken away. Please continue to help us to run the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Father, help us not to shun your word as we hear it today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.